This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to Open Pediatrics Nursing Wheelchair Practice Forum. My name is Michelle DeGrazia, and I'm here today with Dr. Robin Newhouse. Dr. Newhouse is the Dean of Indiana University School of Nursing and an Indiana University Distinguished Professor. Her research focuses on health system interventions to improve care processes and patient outcomes. She has published extensively on health services improvement interventions, acute care quality issues, and evidence-based practice. Dr. Newhouse was appointed to the Methodology Committee of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, also known as PreCORI, in 2011. After having served six years as chair, is currently serving as the committee's vice chair. She has served on multiple National Academy of Medicine committees and in the past, chair of the Academy Health Board. Dr. Newhouse was inducted into Sigma Theta Tau International Honor Society of Nursing and the Research Hall of Fame in 2014 and received the American Nurses Credentialing Center's President's Award in 2015. In 2017, Dr. Newhouse was elected as member of the National Academy of Medicine. In addition to her own studies, Dr. Newhouse is currently serving as the principal investigator of Indiana University's Grand Challenge responding to the addictions crisis. This grand challenge is a $50 million initiative in partnership with the state and major health systems in Indiana to reduce substance use disorders. Robin, thank you for joining us. To begin, I've learned from several nursing leaders that there is usually a catalyst that precedes their interest in evidence-based practice. Can you share with our audience what your catalyst was? Well, I, I think even as an, a nurse, uh, very early in my career, I was always observing the processes of care and trying to understand what the best care possible would be and what nurses can provide. So for me, it was really a bias for action and, and really being very frustrated with any inaction. But there was a fundamental need for evidence uh, in clinical practice for nursing to make decisions that that were important to all clinicians, but nurses specifically, and to link the patient outcomes to the work that nurses do. At that time, there were very few studies uh, that answered questions that nurses were asking, number one, and there were even fewer models for evidence-based practice, particularly models that had tools for nurses to be able to use to synthesize evidence quickly, to uh, make recommendations for practice quickly and to translate them to practice quickly. And there was uh, even fewer uh, models to inform how to get the evidence into practice. So implementation science was uh, not a science at the time. So it really was that bias for action that drove me uh, forward and eventually uh, led, led me to Johns Hopkins. So to summarize, you were concerned patients weren't getting the best possible care. Would you be able to expand upon that and maybe provide some examples? Oh, there were so many gaps. You know, at the time, professional organizations like uh, the American um, Perioperative 
of Nurses Association or ASPAN, the, uh, the PRE Anesthesia Nurses Association, were developing standards. And many, many of the standards were based on a consensus. And, you know, as we have today, half of the standards are still based on uh, consensus. But uh, they were trying to develop nursing practice, develop pain guidelines uh, for uh, surgical site preparation guidance, assessment parameters, those kinds of things. But again, uh, consensus. So in our early work, the kinds of questions that we were asking were very, um, very basic. So some of the first questions were, should ambulatory surgery patients void prior to discharge from the post-anesthesia care unit? Now, that would be just preposterous to ask today. But at the time, we were holding patients that were in ambulatory settings till they voided and then they could be discharged. Now, these weren't even patients that had any urinary tract uh, surgeries. So for patients experiencing pain who have a history of substance, substance abuse, what are the best nursing interventions to help manage the pain? Again, not good guidance there. For patients who undergo surgery, what pressure relieving devices should be used to prevent pressure ulcers? Again, if we had problems with nosocomial pressure ulcers. Um, there, there was not the guidance that we needed to inform what kinds of products we should use. And oh yes, uh, one of the early ones was, uh, should nurses be allowed to wear artificial nails in the clinical setting? So uh, I think that's been uh, handled and addressed uh, with, without question at this time. But those were early examples of very beginning questions that were so important for patients and so important for nurses. And yet, uh, not the evidence that we needed to answer them. Well, um, thank you. I'm, I'm a NICU provider, so yeah. I completely understand, um, you know, how important it is to um, really utilize evidence-based practice to keep our patients safe. We're going to stop now for a minute and turn to the audience to ask a question. In your response to our question, please leave your city and country location. Our question is this, you have heard what Dr. Newhouse has described as her catalyst for evidence-based practice. We would like you to tell us what your catalyst for evidence-based practice is. Now, you were involved in development of the John Hopkins evidence-based practice model and evidence-based behavioral practice models. Looking back now, um, what are your thoughts about these models and what would you change about the models if you could? Um, so I would say when we developed the Johns Hopkins evidence-based practice model, it was really driven from practice. It was sort of that same bias for action that I talked about a little bit earlier. And there was there were a couple models out there, but as I said, there were tools for nurses to use. And nurses used to say, say, uh, you know, Robin, I'm not an academic. Just give me what I need to and help me through this process. And they could absolutely do it. So we went from the foundation of listening to clinical practice and to building a model that was informed not only around what they needed, but also informed by the kinds of tools that they needed to get through the process. Evidence-based practice is a method. It is a method to synthesize evidence, rate and grade the evidence, develop a summary of the evidence and make recommendations by applying that summary to the evidence. 
So we worked with them to try to understand some of the questions that they had in practice to develop the tools that they needed. And really the first pilot project after development of the model, when I should say the model, we knew when we developed the model that we needed a conceptual model uh, so that people could visually see what this model contained. We developed a definition for evidence-based uh, practice. And we acknowledge the fact that we don't have randomized controlled trials with good, strong effect sizes to guide the evidence, uh, to, to guide the evidence uh, that we're interpreting. Um, and that we had to be a little more holistic about this. It's not just clinical trials. It was all research and non-research evidence. And we applied a rating and grading system that took that into uh, a uh, consideration in the application of the ed evidence. Furthermore, we knew that evidence-based practice had to be grounded in uh, practice, education, and research. That's what it was about. So when we thought about evidence-based practice, it had to be embedded into the clinical practice, into the academic practice, within those domains. And we also knew that we had external influences like our accreditation and our certifications that might be influencing the way we think about the evidence um, as well. So we developed a conceptual framework, we developed the definitions, uh, we developed the tools, and actually the first uh, test of the tools and the model wasn't a question about patients voiding prior to discharge. Uh, we, we completed that test of the evidence synthesis and uh, the implementation of the evidence and uh, it worked so well. It worked so well it built this interprofessional spray uh, where physicians were saying, this, this is wonderful. I, I want to do more of these. Um, so they went forward. They implemented that, as you might expect, when patients were discharged. No one came back for urinary retention after they did the post call. So um, again, it was grounded in practice. It was grounded by the voices of nurses and clinicians. It became interprofessional. We just provided what the nurses said they needed and gave them a structure and a process, not only to uh, evaluate the evidence, but to also translate the evidence. The basic model was practice question, helping them develop a practice question uh, in a way that could be answered. Um, then evidence, how to search the evidence, how to evaluate the evidence and determine the quality, quantity, and, and consistency of the evidence. And then there was a translation tool that helped them think about the people that they needed to involve in the evidence-based practice uh, work as well. And we had had um, some data collection tools so that as each project uh, completed, we had a good summary of what had been accomplished so that others could use it across Hopkins as well. So Hopkins uh, was one of those models that, uh, that was very interprofessional, number one, from the beginning. Um, and second of all, it involved people from the School of Nursing as well as from uh, Johns Hopkins. So we, we had that bridge. So very quickly, it got incorporated into the academic curriculum of uh, both the undergraduate and the graduate curriculum. And we enjoyed many partnerships uh, between the school and, uh, and Johns Hopkins. To tell you the truth, I wouldn't change a thing about that model. Highly engaged. Um, 
highly uh, tested. We listened to everyone to make sure that we had tools that would work. And um, at this point, uh, and, and then after after we published the first article, we worked with Sigma Theta Tall, and they published the first book, which is now on, um, I think it has three versions out, and I think they're working on the fourth now. So it is a model that nurses can use, and they can um, apply the tools very easily, uh, and it's, it's not an academic exercise. It's a clinical exercise, so very exciting. I wouldn't change a thing, and um, I, I think that they're doing a great job with spread and enhancing the work of evidence-based practice globally uh, now. And this is such a great example of nurses really taking the lead in um, changing healthcare and improving healthcare. So you've indicated um, the importance of models when synthesizing the available evidence. But as we know, to truly provide evidence-based practice, it must include translation into practice. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your experience with that? Yes, um, certainly. Let me, I, I should probably say something about the evidence-based uh, behavioral practice model because there was translation in that model uh, too. So it, so I would say both models, if you're looking for a conceptual model, both models have a conceptual model associated with them and definitions. But the difference in the evidence-based behavioral practice model um, was that Bonnie Spring from Northwestern University uh, was bringing together experts in evidence-based practice, uh, interprofessional experts, to develop a model for behavioral health practice. So um, as you know, uh, psychologists have empirically supported treatments and there was a process uh, to evaluate, but this was to uh, formalize that process. So we all discussed the models that we were involved with and then developed the evidence-based behavioral uh, practice model that, by the way, is still being used. And I, I, I would say uh, this uh, about the issues around evidence uh, evidence synthesis and uh, the need for translation and practice. First of all, uh, the evidence review, the rating and grading of evidence and the synthesis. Um, if you're in an undergraduate research class or you're in a graduate research class or you're in a PhD or a DNP, you are going to learn how to evaluate evidence with a tool. You're go that's going to be a basic competency. You're going to learn to synthesize. You're going to learn to apply it to practice. Um, so in many ways, nurses think that it's an academic exercise, but once they get into clinical practice, they say this is actually a life skill. Um, and it's a life skill because it's not just an academic exercise when we can say this is, this is what we should do in the policy. We are translating it to practice and it's going to help people. It is going to be a better way to deliver care when we're already asking ourselves about what the best evidence are for this patient given their personal characteristics, values, preferences, beliefs, and their mutual goals. So you must apply the evidence. You must translate it. It's not just a technical skill. You have to have those application skills as well. So as I said, the synthesis it produced results in a, a the quality, quantity, and effectiveness, the, the consistency of evidence on which we're making the decision. It's about how confident we are that there is going to be an effect on uh, the patient or the process with a low, uh, low harm uh, problem. 
probability. And uh, so I, I would say that evidence translation to practice is where we get the benefit. It is the sweet spot of evidence-based practices. What makes our practice better? It makes us professionals and it makes the, not only the, the care process evidence-based, but we improve the outcomes for the patients we serve, both the patients, the organization, the system, and the community outcomes, no matter what level we're talking about. Well, certainly if we do all that work to review and synthesize the evidence, it really doesn't make sense to stop there, does it? Um, because the patients don't get the benefit, as you said. Um, can you provide some examples of when models or frameworks were applied and help facilitate translation of evidence into practice? So I can talk a little bit about um, uh, my own work and about just, there, there are a number of models. Let me start by saying that multiple types of models have been developed over the past decades. In uh, 2012, Tobac uh, reviewed 61 models and um, would refer to that work. And then uh, in other uh, summaries, have, they have classified the type of models that are available, like influencing implement, uh, implementation outcomes or evaluating implementations. Uh, today, I'm specifically talking about evidence translation. And my evidence translation, I, I, I will use any model. And early in my uh, research, I used uh, multiple models, but in uh, 2004, I read an article in Millbank Quarterly uh, by Trish Greenhall, and uh, it is uh, called The Diffusion of Innovations in Service Organizations. And I uh, saw that model and I said, that is something that I can use. I have used that model ever since in every study, and I'll talk a little bit about the components uh, of that model, um, but I've also used it for consultation with health systems because health system leaders can look at that model, understand each concept in the model, and know what to do to you know, reduce C-sections, to uh, decrease nosocomial infections. We can walk through that model stepwise. So um, I have used that, and I'll tell you about just a couple of the studies, but the model um, has an external environment in which we, we all have, uh, are within an external context that we have to consider. It has a internal system, and then it has uh, portions that interact with the internal system. The model says you've got to have antecedents, and you've got to have, for example, nurse staffing. You've got to have the right nurse staffing to get the right outcomes. Uh, there might be some electronic medical record tools that you have to have in certain situations. Those would be considered antecedents. The second thing in the in internal system is that you have to get the organization ready. And most often we get an organization ready by uh, training, by observing, by testing competencies. So you're priming the pump, you're getting the organization ready. The next thing is adoption. So the organization, the person, the team has to make the decision that they actually are going to use that evidence because if they have already made the decision, they're not going to use the evidence, it's hard to go much further. So that's adoption. Then there's implementation. So that's actually the methods to get that evidence into practice. And if all of those are aligned, you get to the consequences that will improve the care. 
There are also intersections uh, with that internal system, which include things like having resources or having a change champion. But there's also something about the evidence itself that makes it usable or not usable within a specific context. And um, the, the method by which evidence is translated also makes a difference. There are active methods um, and there are passive methods. So if you're going to diffuse and put a notice on the bulletin board that from now on you have to use this evidence, it's less likely to be used than it is if you actually think about the strategies one needs to use and you work with a, the staff about how the best implementations are, what the best implementation strategies are, and that's how you get it into practice. So this model um, appears to be linear. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you have to go back and forth, but I do find that conceptually it takes a very complex issue, implementation or translation, and it breaks it down in ways that health systems can very easily understand. So that's the one um, I have used. And let me just give you um, two examples. One um, example was a uh, cluster randomized study uh, that was testing a quality collaborative in five states uh, with rural hospitals, 23 rural hospitals that were randomized um, to uh, a first phase or a second phase of um, a quality collaborative with shared tools. And that is uh, certainly available, but we use that model to walk through each of the antecedents to create the tools. So the antecedents became that baseline assessment that we used where the site coordinators would assess their own organization to determine whether all the, is the staffing what it needs to be? Do you have the electronic record of where you can input these data? And this, this specifically was about improving heart failure care. So it was also linked to the quality measures related to heart failure. So uh, we had to make sure all those, were, that would be an antecedent. We got them ready by developing um, a consortium of training. So phase one trained separately from phase two. And so that's how we got them ready. And they told us what additional tools that they needed to improve heart failure care. Of course, they had the evidence standards about uh, heart failure care. We had best practices. Uh, we had speakers come in to speak them, to them um, so that they were able to get what they needed to get ready. And then in terms of adoption, it was pretty clear and they stated in the site coordinator meetings that they were ready to move forward. And then the implementation plan um, in, in the heart failure study, it, that was not an implementation study, but we did collect information about the implementation of uh, heart failure care so we could share those uh, best practices as well. And then the consequences were actually better care processes. And in, in fact, uh, we did find uh, relationships um, between the quality collaborative and the work context, as well as the quality collaborative and uh, care processes and, and some of the uh, staffing uh, attributes as well and better heart failure care. Um, in the second one, we just finished actually, 
And that one, uh, this was also a cluster randomized approach using the same model. And in uh, Indiana, as in the nation, in 2015, we started to see a disturbing trend of deaths. Uh, related to opioid overdoses. And the evidence was so compelling. Um, we uh, submitted and were funded uh, to do a cluster randomized approach once again uh, to implement. Now, this was an implementation study, so we actually were studying the methods of implementation. And um, it, we, use, we uh, once again used a uh, phased uh, design uh, to implement the uh, and it was once again a waitlist control. So one group started that was randomized, and another group came in at the second phase. And what we provided were tools for screening, brief intervention, referral for treatment, which is an evidence-based process. And there, there is lots of data related to conducting these processes and recognizing a person at risk that has risky alcohol or drug use, as well as conducting a brief intervention that's less than five minutes, and then referring them to treatment if in fact the risk were high. Unfortunately, within organizations, the evaluation of patients using valid and reliable tools were incredibly low. Um, so in a 14 hospital study in Indiana, seven hospitals started the implementation and seven hospitals with a waitlist control. Over, uh, over time, we had significant improvements in screening. We had improvements in brief intervention. And um, we, we um, saw SBIRT uptake, uh, clearly. Uh, we, we developed and completed a, a toolkit in partnership with our uh, community. So the same toolkit, we brought our community partners together to help inform uh, that work. And now we're moving forward and have been funded by a dissemination study, which now it'll be spread. But in that study, um, this, this study was just what we do in quality improvement. So what we also provided um, were implementation strategies. And there is a paper, again, on a, a consensus about the implementation strategies, and it's, uh, they call it ERIC, Expert Recommendations on Implementing Change, ERIC. They were able to choose the strategies that work best. And I have to say, in that study, um, of course, one, the, the top two were around training, retraining, boosters, and um, also the, uh, the second was around the toolkit that we provided, that the toolkit provided the resources that they need. That's a great example of really moving it from, you know, the synthesis right through to the implementation. When you said, um, you know, choose their own, um, and you talked about tailoring it to their, their um, setting. Um, I'm assuming part of that is the stakeholder buy-in at their own setting, what they could accomplish within the context of the environment they were in, right? Yes, yes. And um, thank you for uh, asking that. Because, and I, I want to be clear that the clinical intervention, SBIRT, could not be tailored. Okay? What they could do is tailor the process. So interestingly enough, we learned that there were seven processes across these 14 hospitals for alcohol and drug. 
So the fact that you screen using a valid and reliable tool and not just saying, do you drink alcohol or do you take any drugs? You're using a tool that gets a valid response that help you to assess the risk that the patients are encountering. Likewise, for tobacco, there were five different processes. Um, so teaching them to ask the right question, they had to ask it the way that we had identified in this process, just like in quality improvement though, you would, you would help to script these kinds of things. Um, they, they had to conduct screening, brief intervention, referral for treatment the way that they were taught. That's a clinical intervention, had to have fidelity, that was a must. But when it comes to who conducts the, inter who conducts the brief intervention, there were some um, sites that actually the nurses wanted to have the social worker or the respiratory therapist or the case manager uh, or the nurse practitioner or a psychologist come to do the brief intervention. So they set up processes by which they would bring in the right person. We're gonna stop now for a moment and turn to the audience. We'd like to ask the audience a question. In your response, please leave your city and country location. And the question is this, what has been your experience with a model or framework for translating evidence into practice? I wanted to ask you, how often do you believe the evidence should be reviewed um, to ensure the delivery um, of evidence-based practice and the best possible care? Most of the sources, and I completely agree, is every two, three, uh, two to three years, you have to go back to the evidence uh, to see what's new and, uh, and see if any risks have emerged related to your practices or any benefits have emerged. So it's, it's the right thing to do. Uh, I know it feels uh, pretty cumbersome, but we have wonderful sources of evidence now, and uh, we have to make sure our patients are getting the very best. Right. Well, things are moving so quickly. Um, you describe a high-functioning, organized systems approach to evaluating and implementing evidence-based practice, um, which, of course, must include translation to practice. Are you able to provide some examples? I mean, you already have talked about several, but um, groups that have successfully implemented and sustained this type of approach and um, what do you believe most contributed to that success? Um, so I, I would say I'm going to go back to uh, my uh, work at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And I would say that um, some of the things that were very positive about the early experience and, and their experience now is um, really having very high functioning interprofessional teams. Uh, and cohesive systems and an expectation to implement the evidence. Um, so that, that was basic. Um, and, but organizationally, they were, at the time we developed the model, set up to do so. They were set up to do so because it was a very decentralized system so that each product line, uh, pediatrics and surgery, uh, were like their own hospital in many ways. So I, I'd say that uh, that is uh, one of the first examples. The second example um, was probably um, the expert example that I uh, gave you. 
that has just finished up. And so I, I, I just uh, have to say that an interprofessional team was really important. People that work together and have different types of expertise uh, that can challenge each other, having connections and linkages to the health system that, and to the patients we plan uh, to improve the care for, um, I think are all important. And I, I have to say in these examples, I didn't mention patients, um, but I have to say in um, our heart failure study, some of the follow-up from that heart failure study was absolutely to connect with patients. Once we found that this uh, collaborative work, the next study was actually to go back to rural patients and we worked with a couple rural hospitals uh, to interview patients to make sure what we were doing as nurses. The examples I gave you are us as nurses doing a better job implementing the evidence in our processes. But we can never forget that these processes are for patients and we have to involve the patients at all times when we're thinking about the care that is being delivered. I don't think I could say any better than you just did about the importance of engaging the patients. Um, that is something that, you know, we can come up with all the recommendations um, for best care, but if the patient can't, you know, um, utilize those recommendations or put them into to action, um, it, it's not going to help them. Um, you know, it's just uh, been a joy to speak to you today. Um, I wondered if there was any final thoughts or ideas that you had that you wanted to share with us before we close? No, I, I think the only thing that I have to say is that evidence-based practice is not a process. It is a way of critical thinking and a way of making decisions. It is a skill that will be applied and used throughout your lifetime. Um, um, it, it is more than an academic exercise. It's a way to think and do. It's a way that we have to make sure that the, the way we are practicing is top notch. And the evidence translation, there's lots of people that can help with this. And to make it simple, decrease complexity, help you think about what kinds of um, considerations you should think about before you ever translate the evidence. These evidence-based practice models uh, can be incredibly helpful. And uh, I hope it was helpful for you. I'm excited about the professional practice of nursing. Personally, very proud to be a nurse. And uh, with evidence-based practice at the core, uh, with evidence translations, my area of scholarship and science. So uh, keep on going, do a great job. Make your practice evidence-based and make sure you translate and translate well. Well, we will sure try. Thank you so much again for joining us today. And um, I wish you well with your next endeavors. Well, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. It was certainly great talking with you. And, and I just am so excited about the work you're doing at Boston's Children's. Thank you so much for the invitation for a dialogue. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.